welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope, like always, that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. And my name is Ashley. Today we have Dr. Ella Gilbert with us on the podcast. She's a very cool climate scientist, also a presenter, has a PhD in Antarctic climate change. She loves clouds, passionate about communicating climate science. And I have so many questions actually to ask you about this. One of them being, how do you talk about climate science in a positive way? It's such a tricky thing to do. But anyway, before we even get there, I've kind of two questions for you. So possibly we normally start with one, but I'm so curious about your boxing. And I'm also just so curious to know when was just that first time that you thought to yourself, I think I love the atmosphere a little bit and I'm probably just going to go and study some stuff on that. And now you've ended up with a PhD. Where, where, where did that very, very, very first thought come from? I'll do the boxing one first. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially very, very topical I mean your listeners won't be able to see but I do have a slight velcro scratch on my face <laughs> we can't all say that <laughs> oh yeah I know just, maybe it just makes me look very tired I'll just go with that as well um <laughs> it's a good excuse boxing I just fell in love with at university I also the, the club that I box for I actually grew up with that club at the end of my road um, and then I went away all the way to UEA in Norwich to do my degrees and decided that I would try it there uh, because you know traditional boxing gyms tend to be quite intimidating especially for 16 year old girls and I completely fell in love with it at university that was it I, I honestly I did one one session and was completely hooked you know even though I couldn't walk downstairs for about a week but <laughs> <laughs> you know every time you you do it it gets slightly easier and now 10 years in it's become difficult but not as difficult yeah <laughs> um it's a really challenge I've actually given boxing a go for a bit actually for a couple of months I was terrible at it just so we're clear but I got really good at skipping <laughs> a skill that some people take years to to accomplish yeah, yeah. It's, it's really challenging and also just so fun and a little bit addictive as well especially once you get you know if you do catch yourself in the mirror actually doing uh like a like one two one two one two you're like oh my god I'm doing it don't overthink it <laughs> and as soon as you start thinking about it that's when and it goes, up, goes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out the window <laughs> in terms of the uh the kind of atmosphere stuff I actually have a very kind of humanities geography history background and when I originally went to university it was more to do kind of environmental social science uh, and politics and I hadn't really even heard I didn't know what meteorology was really and it wasn't until I came around to choosing my options in my second year of my undergrad that meteorology happened to be one of the only things that fit with the rest of my timetable uh, so I took it and despite being completely terrified by the amount of thermodynamics we did in the first four weeks fell in love with it and I, I guess I've always loved knowing how things work and particularly in in the natural world so mechanisms of this thing leads to this thing leads to that thing and then sometimes it does that and then sometimes it does this that kind of mechanistic process oriented understanding has always really captured my imagination and the fact that you can look out a window anywhere you are look up at the sky and go, I know what's going on. Or more, more usefully, I don't know what's going on, but I'll have a good guess at predicting yeah. what's happening. That's probably more right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
you know, maybe if it's a really clear day, really yeah. boring weather-wise, I might know what's going on. But, you know, <laughs> some good clouds, something to uh, scratch your head over. Lovely. <laughs> so, yeah, I just I guess I just fell in love with it. And the idea that it's it's almost there are so many kind of processes involved and you can figure out what's coming next or sometimes you can figure out what's coming next. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And I, that's like that kind of pattern recognition predictability is quite empowering you know when you're like actually I really do I can see what's happening here and you just mentioned about thermodynamics there I mean we often talk on our podcast about how um people get thrown off by maths in a degree or you know think oh god I can't do that but actually once you can visualize what you're all those numbers which you will never ever touch it well I've never touched again in my entire life it's pretty amazing what what you can actually gauge from just looking out with the window yeah, I think that's the thing that really freaked me out about physics and sciences generally when I was at school is just I don't I can sort I can do maths, but I don't have that mathematical mind. I don't find it easy to conceptualize things in terms of numbers and equations. But if you tell me about the physical meaning of something, I can actually get my head around that. And like I said, with the process kind of oriented thinking, yeah. it's the same thing with with meteorology and atmospheric science because you can imagine you know you always comes back to air parcels lifting or whatever it is but (laughs) you can kind of visualize it in a way that makes more sense than if you're looking at some kind of scary derivative equation do you know what (laughs) there's actually only one person I've ever met in in meteorology and it's a small enough world you know like there's maybe I don't know, a couple of thousand of us in the UK that do, you know, between meteorology and climate science. And I've only ever actually genuinely met one person who said to me that, oh, it all falls out of the equations. That's how it makes sense to them. And, but that's the only person I know. Everyone else has like a visualization process of, you know, for me, it's an engine, uh, you know, waves, you know, that type of thing. So I think most of it, yeah, it's quite, quite for for all the science. It's like the mass is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) so go from just this random meteorological course that just happened to fit into your geography degree to being an expert now in all of the cold places in the earth and being asked to talk about it how did where did that happen how did that happen I know it's it's quite a, a transformation I did um well I I fell in love with meteorology I discovered how incredible it is changed half the rest of my uh, degree so that I ended up doing a lot more kind of like in quotes hard sciences and finished with the same degree title although I could have probably changed it but I wanted to kind of in, ensure that I still had the the things that I originally went into it for uh, and then did a, a postgrad did a master's in in climate science at UEA which is good for that (laughs) yeah Um, and then ended up thinking hey well I don't want to do it right now but I do really like research I did my master's thesis on uh, Antarctic kind of climate and temperature trends um, and I found that really interesting and I've always been really fascinated by the kind of wild remote places in the world and Antarctica. I, th- I think it's watching too much David Attenborough as a child, actually. Uh, <laughs> or is there ever I, I don't know if there's such there a isn't thing. Yes, like you there cannot isn't. consume enough of that. Yeah. So uh, watching Not Enough, David Attenborough as a child, uh, <laughs> made me really kind of fascinated by these 
incredibly remote, uh, distant, uh, harsh environments that are kind of so pivotal in understanding the the climate system as a whole. And, you know, the British Antarctic. So I think I, I was actually on a train from London to I was in Norwich to Cambridge to visit a friend when I was still at university. And there was this guy, and I now realise he was probably a PhD student, holding a big bass kit bag. And whenever you go to Antarctica, you take this mammoth 23 kilo bright orange kit bag with you that's stuffed full of all the stuff you need um, and is emblazoned with British Antarctic Survey on it. And I looked at him, I was like, hmm, that looks interesting. (laughs) I wonder what he's got in his bag. But it kind of seeded the yeah. uh, the idea of uh, the British Antarctic Survey and that being a place where you could go and then a bit more research later realised that oh you can actually do research there and maybe they actually host PhDs no way so <laughs> when then was that so you fall in love with all of these things you're clearly someone who's very passionate about whatever it is that they're passionate about so you don't you sound like someone who like doesn't do stuff by half. But did you have a lot, like, because you cannot go further away in the earth. Yeah, I like extreme <laughs> like, things. You cannot you know? go further away. <laughs> but did you ever have like a light bulb moment, a moment where you thought to yourself, this climate is changing too quickly and I need to do something? Did you have a mo- that moment? So aside from the interest gaining momentum in your head, but was there an actual moment where you thought, right, this is actually really scary what I'm looking at? Yeah, I think it would be different if I was at school now because kids have such a good education, well, comparatively very good education about climate change now. Um, But I first heard about it when I was about 14 um, in geography. I had a really uh, rogue but excellent geography teacher. And I learned about it. And at that stage, it was it still felt quite distant and abstract, but it enraged me that there was this inequality in the impacts. It was this inequality generationally um, across the world in terms of developed countries having all this historical responsibility and developing countries having uh, to bear all the, the brunt of the impacts and having basically caused none of it Um, and all of this just really really stoked the fire and the fury and of course you know when you're when you're a teenager you tend to be very passionate about things Um, and I've always been the kind of person that goes for it and will try and do something about it if I feel uh, very strongly about something so I got uh, very into learning about climate change because like I said, fascinated by by the topic, but also I've always been quite academic. And I felt like that was a way to kind of get my head around the the issue. Uh, But then I also really threw myself into climate activism um, and decided then and there really that I would try to use my skills in a way that contributed to you know, solving, saving the world, man, (laughs) (laughs) tackling the climate crisis. And I mean, that has looked at like different things as I've uh, gone through my career, let's say. So I've been involved in campaigning and climate activism and then also uh, research, of course. And I see that my role has mutated quite a lot since those days. And now it's more kind of acting as this translator, maybe, between scientists and the public and trying to communicate all of those thorny complicated issues in a way that is accessible and people can understand because ultimately knowledge is power and if we know what's happening 
why it matters and most crucially what we can do about it, then you're giving people the tools to, you know, be the makers of their own destiny. Mm. And I think that's really important. And when did you reach on like that, that journey of kind of like wanting to make that simpler for everyone to understand? When did you reach the point where you're like, I really have to spin this in a positive way? What's that for you? So can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I think the when I first started research, like when I first started doing my PhD, it was kind of impressed upon us that science, there's that quote by um, say Mark Walpole, it's science isn't finished until it's communicated. Um, ah, and I, I love that. Yeah, I love that quote because it's so true. Like, first of all, from the perspective of you're generating all this work, all this research, all this knowledge, and then what's the point in kind of going 90% of the way and then failing at the final hurdle and then not sharing it. Um, but also that, you know, you've got a duty as not only a, a scientist, but as a, as a publicly funded scientist to communicate your findings back to the people who are funding it essentially. Mm. And it's not just a kind of financial professional obligation. I think it's a moral one as well, because I'm in a position of privilege having done three different degrees and I'm immensely lucky to have been in a position to do that. And I think that it's my duty given that position of privilege to share all the things that I've learned and all the things that you know other people have found in a way that is accessible and makes that change easier to kind of put into action uh, because we know that climate change is such a huge problem and it's going to take this gargantuan effort to tackle it so why not make it as easy as possible and give everybody the means to change things so Somewhere along the lines, I realized that uh, I was perhaps it, it. I didn't find it as difficult as some people did. I've, I'm also from a long line of thespians. So, OK, <laughs> I, I'm good at the old jazz hands. Um, and weirdly, it's just like this, uh, this kind of coming full circle. I always wanted to be an actor before the climate change thing. Yeah. Um, so now it's like marrying the two together in this, this perfect yeah. harmony, you know, yeah. where you get to uh, talk about climate change, but also try to do it in a way that is compelling and convincing. An expression of your love and passion as such for what it is that you do. I must say that I really enjoyed your videos on YouTube about the climate denier comments. They're my favorite to make. They are so, so good. So so ridiculous. (laughs) The kind of stuff that you get. I mean, I've got stacks and stacks. I've got a whole folder on my computer of (laughs) fan mail. And I also collect it from colleagues. I've also, I also get hard copy correspondence these days, which is, um, I've got a stack of it. It's, uh, it's brilliant. Um, And it's, when you get confronted with climate deniers and the kind of aggressive, uh, undermining sort of tactics that they use I think you've got two uh, two responses really one you can be upset and uh, angry or scared by it or you can you know turn it on its head and take the mickey out of it and that's the approach that I try to take because 
you know it's like one of those things you have to laugh or cry and yeah. uh, I'd rather laugh yeah. <laughs> and, and also it shows in that, in that point as well that how important it is to therefore communicate the science behind the climate because obviously there are people that are still skeptical about these things um so it makes your job even more important about getting the science and the message out there for people so that they can have it available for them to do what they want with it exactly and I think also humor is a really good way to communicate about mm. climate change when it's some, something that's so kind of doom ridden usually and I think the success of films like Don't Look Up as well have really demonstrated that because so much we get either you get documentaries that are very like doom and gloom that no mm. one really wants to watch <laughs> um, and also broadcasters and people who make media content don't really want to make those shows because they don't do well because people quite honestly don't want to spend their evening relaxing mm -hmm. watching something that's horrible <laughs> but if you can bring humor into it and make it you know you still have the important message but you're you're telling it in a way that's more entertaining it's much more likely to hit to strike a note with people and I think that's something that is increasingly being realized and I'm trying to contribute to that in my own small way. <laughs> yes. And it reaches so many more people as well, I think, when you add exactly. that humour. Because it's just people gravitate to those funny videos and it's educating people with humour. I mean, they're my best they're Trojan my horse. videos. I'm, yeah, if I'm learning something and I'm laughing at the same time, they're the best videos to watch. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, I was listening to some of the COP26 talks um, on and off. There was a, a you know a channel on, on YouTube and one of uh, quite an interesting talk was with you know, people in media and um, basically though the as the as the talk went on one of the big things that came out of the at the end of the talk kind of after I guess the emotional part of the discussion had happened was how important humor is in conveying climate change and if I'm perfectly honest I'm just being really honest here it never really occurred to me and once it was said and once it was kind of in the discussion I was like god that's like that's 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 half of it nearly it's probably even nearly more than half of it because funny is funny people want to laugh and like as you say at the end of the day you know you're tired depending on what your day job is you may have you know gone you know everyone is working so hard at the moment but to actually come home and laugh at something but like you say yeah not be like all doom and gloom anyway it it, it sort of started a thought process in my own head about how do you actually there has to be other ways to talk about this because actually one thing so I'm going to continue on just with my thought process here was that a friend of mine was saying that her son was in school and he had a two-hour talk on climate change he came home completely anxious turning off all of the lights he wouldn't read with the light on in the evening like he was clearly like really affected by it some of his friends weren't and some of his friends were and that was obviously the wrong way to approach it so if you could even start with a bit of humor with children and I think that's probably one thing that's missing a little bit from the curriculum or it's just that kind of humor around it as well you should not want kids coming home feeling anxious you want to give them solutions and tell them that yes it's good to turn off lights but and all their little differences make a big deal but there has to be another way to do it for them you know? Yeah, I think it has to be empowering and whatever kind of 
way you're communicating about these things and it doesn't have to just be climate change it could be all sorts of different things like sure you have to acknowledge the problem and convey the urgency of the challenge but also it's important to leave people feeling empowered like they have something that they can go away and do if they care about it and giving people the the tools and the the skills to go and uh, learn more themselves or to do whatever it is that they they can do to contribute and that yeah that starts at a really early age it's about mm-hmm. telling getting kids excited about the solutions rather than necessarily saying ah oh, this is really terrible because I mean ultimately the the traditional model of doom and gloom and warning about what's going to happen has not worked <laughs> scientists have been doing that for a very long time since before I was born and it's not really worked because we haven't really gotten as far as we need to get in terms of our climate trajectory. So a new approach is required. And I guess that that's coming through with not so much new climate science, obviously climate science is developing and expanding all the time, but the kind of like, like meteorology, the fundamentals of it is there. We understand that this is happening way, way too fast but yeah the I think traditionally as well scientists particularly with atmospheric physics even medicine are not as vocal because they were never taught to be as vocal because they're researchers and they wasn't important before wasn't important yeah they produce papers with you know your abstract your study and all of the people who contributed to it and that really really has to change if you are someone who is passionate about that message because like you say if you all of that research that's happening but if you're not getting it across although in saying that the message is changing now isn't it we're not trying to tell people the climate is changing that's pretty much accepted now yeah and you are a climate denier if you don't accept that I mean 99% of papers and scientists agree on it but yeah yeah the framing has changed I think you're right there it's it's starting to to feel like the way that people are talking about it is shifting and I do think that more and more climate scientists are starting to to speak out perhaps more so in in certain fields maybe maybe it's a a small cryosphere echo chamber but I feel like lots of people who work on icy uh, places whether that's glaciers or the Antarctic or the Arctic or combination Mm -hmm. thereof are all starting to to be a bit more vocal about those things and maybe it's because they're the canary in the coal mine they are warming really fast and changing really fast and lots of these lots of my my colleagues working in these fields are really passionate about these places like I am um and seeing them change is terrifying but I do feel like more and more there is more speaking out about what can be done do you think part of that conversation about the cryosphere is to do with business and economics? Because as those areas in the world start to melt, particularly in the Arctic, the shipping points open and it changes the cost of shipping and all of that. Do you, I mean, not to sound too skeptical from my point of view, do you think that's part of it, the business, the economic side? Oh, it's, it's one of those things, it's a can of worms. The more you uh, open it up, the, the more issues and complexity you uncover ultimately there's always a geopolitical element to climate change because there are vested interests that have interests that are served by continuing our fossil fuel economy um, and that that profiteer off the extraction of natural resources 
Um, but that's because we we live in a capitalist world and that's how our um, extractive system has been developed. And ultimately those those same businesses are going to want to continue to extract resources and wealth from the natural mm. world, whether that's in shipping or drilling for oil or all of those things. That's that's a slightly more cynical perspective, perhaps. Mm. But um, I think business is increasingly being swayed by public opinion and call it greenwashing or call it transformation. I don't know. There's probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, <laughs> that is probably the truth. Yeah. Um, more and more is happening. And whether or not it's, you know, just lip service or not, it seems like things are starting to change a bit more in terms of businesses getting on board with net zero pledges or this kind of thing, as well as governments and people and the public and other organizations starting to to get onto it obviously a little bit too slowly and a little bit too late mm-hmm. perhaps but you know better than nothing and we have to just keep pushing to, for, to kind of accelerate and ramp that up I think newer businesses smaller ones are generally have more of a moralistic standpoint and all of this and will attempt from the beginning to you know either keep some of their profits back for something else so you know giving out to the rest of the world also with the idea of climate in mind as well so there, there is hope there but it is difficult with the bigger more traditional businesses that you were saying it's yeah it's a harder transition even with you know banks and a pension that's being invested or traditional money you know money transactions I think that's a little bit yeah I think that's something that people often forget about is the the power of finance and a lot of the time we don't pay attention to where our pension is invested I mean, <laughs> how many people actually really fully understand how their pension have, is or have, or have one, you know, they, they don't really yeah. know what's being done with their money in a bank. Exactly. Or... And ultimately, a lot of these things are fueling industries that continue to allow climate change to continue apace, let's say. Mm. And if you really do want to, um, I mean, you can follow the money. That's that's always a, a powerful thing to do. Um, this is obviously a lot easier said than done, but financial and investment type change, I think, is is a really underrated uh, way of tackling climate change because it could really make a difference if in those investments, instead of into oil and gas and coal, end up going into much more sustainable things. Mm. Just can you bring it back down to basics for us again, just to let us know why? Why do we need to pay so much attention to the poles? Well, what happens at the polar regions affects the whole planet. Um, And that's for a few reasons. First of all, they're lovely and white. And in a a stable climate, that lovely white ice reflects all of this incoming solar radiation back out to space. And it preserves the climate in its kind of in quotes, background natural state that we've evolved in. So for, you know, the purposes of human civilization, we've evolved in this nice, stable climate, and it's in our best interests to maintain in that nice, stable climate. However, when we start losing ice, you get um, much darker land or ocean exposed beneath it. It starts to absorb more energy. Um, It starts to heat the planet up more quickly. And that kind of has a reinforcing feedback whereby you get more warming, where you get more ice melting, you get more warming, et cetera. And that 
changes the the climate that we're living in and the polar regions are also uh, most where we have most of our fresh water so the antarctic has about 58 meters of sea level rise stored in in its ice and if it all melted that would be 58 meters of sea level rise don't worry it's not going to happen tomorrow <laughs> i didn't know that's it's huge yeah, Greenland That's is the seven or so, and then all the kind of landed glaciers make up the, the remaining metre-ish. So all the, the ice in the polar regions is about 66 metres of sea level rise. Um, so as you might imagine, as the, the ice uh, on land starts to melt, it goes into the sea and causes our sea levels to rise, bearing in mind that the majority of like big big major cities are based on coastlines or near rivers that is a big problem for uh, a huge amount of our civilization I think I can't remember the exact statistic but I reckon it, I think it's about a half of the human population say, yeah. lives within mm-hmm. um a, like a, a couple of kilometers of, of sea level so it would mean very big transformations and if even a tiny amount of ice from the the cryosphere ended up in in the ocean that would be kind of coastline changing so people often talk about the loss of the Greenland ice sheet or the West Antarctic ice sheet for instance which are thought to be more vulnerable to ongoing change Um, and either of those would completely redesign the map. And how are we seeing climate change at the moment impacting Antarctica? Antarctica is a funny one because it's so gigantic. It's different in different parts. So generally, we kind of think of it as the East Antarctic, which is this really big, uh, like ice sheet, and it's in the east, surprisingly. Uh, (laughs) But it's quite stable. It's so far been relatively unchanging. And then we've got the West Antarctic ice sheet, which has been warming really quickly um, recently, and that's primarily driven by a warming ocean. And this is a region of concern because it contains enough ice to raise global sea levels by about three and a half metres if it collapsed. Um, And we're seeing really rapid changes in the glaciers that kind of stem from that ice sheet. They're accelerating, they're they're churning out huge amounts of ice um, and there there are signs that they're starting to uh, accelerate even further. Um, And then we've also got the the Antarctic Peninsula, which is different again. It's kind of warmer, it it sticks out further. It's it's a different kind of climate to the really, really harsh continental climate that you get in the, the east and the west of the Antarctic. But Climate has been changing there, particularly we, you know, we think that temperature rise over the last 60-ish years on the Antarctic Peninsula has been uh, more noticeable, but the West Antarctic is rapidly catching up. (laughs) In terms of other climatic changes, it's not just about temperature rise, although that is very important for a continent that's completely ice covered. It's also changing the weather pattern. So for example, we get this belt of very strong uh, westerly winds that circles the Antarctic continent, also known as the Southern Annular Mode, annular meaning ring-like, and the changing greenhouse gas concentrations and the competition of that with the recovery of the ozone hole is pushing 
the belt of westerly winds further towards the the continent and the position of those westerly winds and the strength of those westerly winds has quite a strong impact on the the climate of the antarctic peninsula um, and the rest of the antarctic as well Uh, but it's the thing about Antarctic climate change is that it's so complicated and all the kind of feedbacks between uh, things like sea ice extent, sea ice cover, um, how, where the sea ice is, the, the kind of cloud regime, the amount, the, the, like the strength of these westerly winds, for example, then you've, that's just the atmosphere. Then you've got the ocean, which is, mm. of course, having another effect and all these loops uh, between the different you know, the different spheres. So you've got the cryosphere, the atmosphere, the ocean <laughs> sphere. <Yeah. laughs> and then also that's before you even consider, you know, linkages to things like yeah. El Nino or mm. other kind of patterns like that. So there's just, yeah, it's awfully complicated. And that's just the Antarctic. And it's <laughs> fascinating though. Thing it's, entirely. it's just so fascinating to, because there's so much more research to be done I mean, the more I, I'm, I'm fascinated by Antarctica anyway, I did my dissertation for my um, undergrad on Antarctica and I'm obsessed. I really want to go at some stage. And I just think the more I learn about it, the more fascinated I become and the more there is just to keep learning and to keep researching there. So that must excite also- well in a way, because obviously there's more opportunities for you to find out more and research more. Absolutely. And as a a kind of curiosity driven field uh, of researchers, there's the, it's that old adage of the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, it's so true. <laughs> There's so ample, true. ample uh, opportunities for discovery. Let's say. <laughs> I think what's fascinating as well is that, like, so obviously now all climate models and weather models all have a uh, like a oh, ocean atmospheric models. You know, they're trying to mix the two, the transfer of energy together. And even with a gigantic supercomputer all over the world, like, and with these incredible people that can actually sit down and sort of model all of these physics of things with what's going to happen. There's still so many things we don't know. That's not saying that you don't know a huge, like we don't know a huge amount because clearly you're studying this as in, you know, it's undeniable that it's, that it's changing, but it is kind of fascinating Think, yeah no you're right it's this, this, this there's this. so much we don't know but that we know enough so yeah yeah we know enough to take action and yes. to know what needs to be done on the grand scheme of things but then there is so many little things that will help us predict the future of Antarctica or you know Croatia or wherever it is that yeah. we're interested in and all of those fine details all add up to help us understand our climate system better and therefore how we're going to figure out mm. what on earth is going to happen over the coming decades and centuries and how you plan for that and it's just so fascinating because yeah the more you scratch the more you realize that mm. there is so much more to discover mm. and also modeling is of course always going to be uh, a less optimum version of the real world and also the real world is hella random mm. <laughs> yes <laughs> which is amazing it's like and where is the actual top of it where is the actual <laughs> you know the the, bo- the bottom of it like where 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 does what starts what finishes what you know yeah it's all chicken and egg teleconnections just blow my mind (laughs) yeah I remember doing some general circulation when I was at university and it honestly I yeah I think I sat and 
right back in the seat every time like I was getting g-forces <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah blown away it does it just kind of bring it back though that there's always a number of ways to look at the same thing in science though and each way you look at it helps you know pin other like little bits of detail together which is why when you're like you just constantly researching in science it must be so important for you to be keep constantly reading consuming 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 and trying to see if you know see what's who's joining it all together like it's you know yeah and I think it's an endless endless task to to keep on top of the literature and to hear what other people are doing but it's yeah it's necessary and there's so much exciting stuff going on in climate research and it's really encouraging to see all of uh, the the next generation of researchers coming up and and I mean, I, I'm not particularly uh, established myself, so I would like to cont- <laughs> include myself in that. But, you know, there's so much exciting stuff happening and new approaches to the kind of old traditional model of academia mm. um, and the, the rise of social media and trying to communicate things in, in novel and innovative ways that, you know, ha- helps your research have more impact, I think is really exciting. And it's it's not just here's my journal article that I wrote for all of Mm. my mates and I'm going to get 30 people to read it, but the half of them are already in my department. Mm. It's, Mm. you know, you can communicate that research worldwide uh, with a video or a tweet or something like that. And I think that's super exciting. Just kind of brings us full circle again at what, what you're doing, which is, yeah, just your new age scientist, really. (laughs) New age scientist. Yeah. (laughs) totally get my crystals out next yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um right I think we're gonna have to move on because I've like a whole other podcast in my head of stuff I want to ask you but anyway we should probably move on and learn a little bit more about you Gemma okay. do you want to take it away a quick fire red yeah so we've got a couple of questions here first of all what's your favorite season autumn hands down I knew we were going to get on, Ella. I knew it. That's my favourite as well. Why is autumn your favourite season? I need to know. Uh, you know, those crisp, high-pressure days where it's sunny, all you need is a jumper, beautiful, crystal clear sky, uh, crunchy leaves, red colours when you look out of the, the window, pumpkins and Halloween, which is the best day of the year. Why is that the best day of the year for you? I mean, what other day of the year are you allowed to dress up, cover yourself in fake blood and scare children? And then eat loads of sweets as well. And eat loads of sweets doing it. I mean, yeah. And and ask strangers for sweets as well. Exactly. It's totally acceptable. (laughs) And uh, I can get behind that. That's a brilliant answer. Okay. We know that you're a cloud lover like we are, but do you have a favourite cloud? Altacumulus lenticularis. (gasps) No way. That's a close <laughs> second for me. See, I knew we get on too. <laughs> What's your first? What's your favorite? Alto cumulus flocus. Any reason? Looks um, like cotton wool. So it, they kind of look like jellyfish in the sky to me. And I just, I, uh, yeah, I just love that like kind of animation of a plus. They're kind of a little bit unusual to see here. So it always means that there's really turbulent winds around. Um, so kind of just paints a picture in the atmosphere of like what's happening to me. If I see that, I'm unlikely to really, I'll have to really, really dig in a forecast to be really confident in what I think is going to happen. Does that make sense? 
but I used to be an observer as well so I'm just like clouds are like my story and I'm like obviously one of them I'm like "Eh, I don't trust you today I don't trust the next (laughs) four hour forecast if it's not quite matching up what I've seen in a profile you know so just it just adds it's one of the finer details for me actually it's a cloud guru that's one sounds word like it. one word for she it is. Gemma yes you know loads of cloud clouds it's brilliant <laughs> although I do love it now my little sons always say to me look mommy the clouds are lovely today say, yes they are <laughs> never a bad cloud no twitter or instagram twitter how comes um when it's quite hard to communicate with pictures only and captions mm. and you can't put links in a caption and I love threads. Uh, yeah. Thread is good, actually. Can yeah, it's because it depends. Lost it's cheating. It's thread. kind of cheating. Yeah. Because it's, it's more than 240 characters. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's really good when you've got you a paper more than that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's a, here's a figure. This is what it means. Here's the thing. There's a link. Here's me explaining it in a stupid yeah. video. Bob's your uncle. Go read yeah. my paper. That kind of thing. It's great. Love it. Okay. Hobnobs or chocolate digestives? Hobnobs. That was a quick answer. Why hobnobs? Number one, better. <laughs> number two. <laughs> Just because. <laughs> number two, more bite, more integrity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Robust. Yeah. Um, number three, they come in vegan. Do they? Yeah. Hobnobs, they're not the milk chocolate ones, which is sad, but yeah. the straight up hobnob is vegan. I didn't know that. Do you know what? I only learned the other day as well. Pesto isn't vegan you can get a vegan version of it now but yeah I, many I, things I've also, learned many things yeah all these things I'm learning about I'm loads of to... cheap biscuits from like supermarket own brand they're so cheap that there isn't actually any butter in them so they are vegan too no way like really? really like 17p yeah. custard creams guaranteed wow. made with oil Delicious. all the more reason to buy them yeah I'm <laughs> trying to move away a bit from meat I wasn't a massive um, meat eater before the boys, but I'm trying to like move their diet on now because they're big enough, you know, they've, you know, experienced all of the diet and you don't want them to develop any, I don't know, weird things or whatever, you know, intolerances to things, but I'm trying to move them on away from meat. So I'm really, really curious at the moment, but also about what the meat substitute is. And then does that have an impact on the environment like how's it being grown or where's it being grown it's anyway it's a minefield you can say that again yeah an absolute <laughs> minefield but I'm glad to know about those vegan biscuits I'm going to look that up Ashley's just going to be buying biscuits on her next shopping trip she won't have anything else as biscuits supermarket trolley <laughs> oh yeah varieties I would, would be creams, in knobs. heaven oh my god jammy Windows. dodgers jaffa cakes oh. you know what that's our other question on here which I actually mixed up today like I changed it up but um we normally ask people jammy dodgers or jaffa cakes neither for me I'm not really a big fan of either but if I had to go if I had to choose it would be a jammy dodger because it's got that bite to it yeah yeah jaffa yeah. cake is just uh. it's just yeah it's, it's too no <laughs> I feel like I really <laughs> like I used to really like them but I'm not as keen now as I used to be I don't remember. They're not as good as I remember them being. They were great when you were a kid, right? It's like a wagon wheel. No one wants to eat a wagon wheel now. This is a really good point. Yeah, because well, if I ever got a wagon wheel when I was growing up, it just felt like the most gigantic thing to be given. So in a party bag, for example. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Rolling, absolutely rolling, just like (laughs) living the dream. (laughs) 
If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? That's a good question. I want to say squash. That's a great answer. No one has ever said that before. Also, they're really hard to peel. I'm getting the integrity from you, (laughs) the substance, the substance. Thick skin, soft on the inside. Ah. That's a really good answer. I'm going to steal that one at some future point in my life. And I'll be like, I want to be a squash. Also, you know, a bit round, green. <laughs> oh my God. If somebody lobbed a squash at you, you'd know about it. You would. You this certainly all makes would. Sense. This all makes sense. Also seedy on the inside, maybe. <laughs> yeah. If you could invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame. They can be fictional. Who would you invite? David Attenborough yeah what would you ask him though can you just talk to me please yeah. <laughs> um I think I'd be really interested in you know the the insight he has into mm. how to communicate things and mm. how to talk to people on a, that on that level how to become a national treasure mm. how does one go yeah. about doing such a thing and you know or like that documentary he made recently which is kind of his witness statement just just more about that hmm. yeah I don't you know I I've often because oh, that's what I do I've often thought if I did meet him what would I say if I ever had the opportunity to I just don't actually know like if I had those like a valuable 10 seconds with him you know where somebody said Ashling, this is David what would I I don't actually know hobnobs or digestives yeah. <laughs> yeah. you'd ask him the next questions David yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd ask him the next question which is toes for fingers or fingers for toes <laughs> I've never seen anyone make that face that's the question fingers for toes because <laughs> you'd be first of all I would feel like cousin it from the Adams family that would be great um oh no wait not cousin it it from it's the Adams it. family because uh, you could scuttle around on your fingers and that would be quite entertaining but also I could multitask even more effectively mm-hmm. and having toes for fingers I feel like would just be like constantly stubbing a toe whenever you punch a punch bag that's a good oh, point oh yeah, yeah it would be you couldn't quite get the cur- <clears throat> curl, curl on them either you'd really yeah. have to you'd really have to work. that wouldn't be pleasant yeah not so good Maybe we should stop asking people that question, Ash. It's really random. I, know. I love Ooh, a everyone random seems, question. Everyone seems to answer it. We've already had one person say that they'd like um, to, uh, toes for fingers. No. Yeah, toes for fingers. Toes for fingers. What was the that reason? Was a, that was a builder. He's on his feet all day. Right. And he just said he so has he somewhere else feet. to stand. So he'd okay. like, yeah, with his legs, he'd have more of a More like a dog standing. or a quadruped <laughs> of some description. <laughs> distribute the weight more evenly now that you say it my tired mind is imagining all of these things oh dear okay and our final question that we always love to ask everyone is one thing that you wish everybody knew about the climate about the climate well we normally ask people about weather but i thought i'd tweak it you can do climate or you can do climate change whichever you prefer or you can do both that it is possible to avoid the worst consequences. We just have to really pull our finger out. Here, here. Great message. Hmm. So I have a question for you. It's actually just thought of a weather wisdom there, if that's all right. Ella, can you tell us the difference between sea ice melting and glaciers melting? 
Yes, gladly. So a common misconception is that melting sea ice, for example, in the Arctic um, is contributing to sea level rise. But because that sea ice is already floating and this is the same as well for ice shelves, they displace their own weight in water, very much like Archimedes in the bath shouting Eureka, um, so that when it melts, it doesn't add at all to the sea level so if you imagine you have a glass of water you've got some ice cubes in there when those ice cubes melt the glass doesn't overflow and it's the same principle as that in contrast when you have a glacier melting or an ice sheet melting which is on land uh, because it's not in the ocean already and floating as soon as you add that ice into the ocean that's when you get sea level rise so it is basically just a matter of if it's already in the ocean and it melts it doesn't add to sea levels if it's not then it does can you also as well touch on the that thermal expansion as, as a, a side of sea level rises? Obviously, that's an, another thing that we need to take into account. Yeah, around about half of sea level rise is caused by thermal expansion, which is literally just the ocean starting to take up more space as it gets warmer. And the other half is input from various different sources. So, for instance the Antarctic, Greenland and mountain glaciers. Um, and then you've also got an, another couple of components which are kind of groundwater storage and the amount of adjustment because even though it seems like a very long time ago now, the, the land is still responding to the end of the last ice age. And in some places it is rising. Um, so for example, in Scotland, uh, the land is still rising uh, in response to losing a whole massive ice sheet in the last ice age, after the last ice age even, last deglaciation. And the kind of rising and sinking of different land masses also has an impact on local sea level. So it's it's a co- more complicated picture than just add ice to ocean, ocean rises. I did not wow. know that about Scotland. Neither and I did I. not know that 50% of uh, sea level rise was thermal expansion. Around about half, yeah. It's, it's also affected by um, how like big damming projects. So, you know, like the Three Gorges Dam, for instance, or um, how much water is kind of like trapped on land because it changes the uh, the water cycle. I also learned this quite recently and it, yeah, it's amazing. I just, there's so much. I'm just like, my blood at the so, moment. I just, yeah. there's so much I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like, a, I don't know what I feel like. I feel like I've, I've literally only got bullet points of climate in my head. I need to learn more. Oh, it's always the way. I wanted to ask you a question, actually. If you've done some weather observing, mm. this is a, 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 a side point. I did a little yeah. bit in Antarctica and it was obviously fantastic. What's your favourite cloud code? So do you mean sign up or do you mean... Like uh, cloud atlas type. Mine is either alto yeah. cumulus of a chaotic sky. Oh, or- I like see Cirrus progressively like, invading the sky, which is like, oh God, if I remember now, CI eight or something like that. So my most common one that I used was SC five, where I worked, which was just, uh, you know, stratocumulus, our cumulus turning into stratocumulus. Oh God! Some of them have amazing names. Yeah, um, I'm just imagining my this big massive <laughs> board I used to just reference all the time. I can just imagine all the clouds becoming really, really chaotic now. I, I love that. I, lo- I love that description of the sky. It's a very it's unique, so perfect. very unique thing. Yeah, a very, very unique thing, which is why the, that cloud descriptor is perfect. But ultimately you can get, oh my God. 
One of the no, pilots when I, I was in Antarctica know. Told, I don't us know. A, um, told us a story about uh, one of the weather observers um, on the ground had said that the, the current weather was outer cumulus of a chaotic sky. Or no, no, the pilot was coming into land um, and they were radioing and saying, oh, yeah, no, it's outer cumulus of a chaotic sky. And the person on the other end of the radio was like, God, you're a real poet, aren't you? Like, that <laughs> outer cumulus of a chaotic sky, like... You're wasted in in aviation. <laughs> like I'm actually, I'm just reading the cloud boards, but there we go. WMI uh, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, God, it would probably be perhaps SC five stratocumulus or cumulus um spreading out into stratocumulus because that was the most common sky. But they're also they're all such a perfect description, and that in itself then tells you about how the pressure is, you know either building or whether a system has passed through because it's lost all of its energy, you know, temperature or pressure, whichever way you want to look at it, but probably SC5. Yeah. I love that question. Thank you for asking me that. <laughs> I feel like that was a little, you've made it not. <laughs> I know this is my life. <laughs> this is all of our lives though. We love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been so kind giving us your time. We yeah, thank you. Honestly, honestly appreciate it. Cause you know, everyone just, gives us their time we don't have anything in return except our gratitude so thank you so much <laughs> no it was really fun i have had a lovely time thank you oh lovely so if you have enjoyed this episode as much as we have enjoyed recording it and i mean we have had an absolute blast recording this episode of ella today we would love it if you would subscribe rate and review the podcast and share it with anybody you think would like to have a little listen if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, we are For the Love of Weather. And on Twitter, we are the number four Love of Weather. And if people want to find you, Ella, where could they find you? Where can they watch your amazing videos that you do? Find me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Gilbs. And on YouTube, it's Dr. Gilbs with a space instead of an underscore. Um, I'm also on Instagram, same handle with the underscore. Don't do quite so much there, but... You can find me all over the internet. Just give it a quick Google. Apparently I've got a knowledge panel now. What? I don't really know what it means, but um, <laughs> it's got my face on Google and that's fine. Wow. I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to check that out. And you've got your website as well. I mean, that's how I, I watch my one. Oh my God. Your website's on, um, amazing. Yes. Brilliant. You can watch Ella's um, past talks that she's done. She did an excellent talk on Antarctica and, uh, sea level rise and ice. oh it was just amazing just check it out it's brilliant <laughs> Ella thank you so much for talking to us today genuinely we really appreciate it and we hope you leave this episode just loving the weather that little bit more thanks for listening